WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com. We're going to take a trip right now. Like we always do about this time. This is a journey into sound. I'm Kyle Long, and you're listening to Cultural Manifesto, made possible in part by the Indianapolis Foundation, celebrating over 100 years of service. On tonight's show, I'll be speaking with guitarist Steve Weekly, an original member of the legendary Indianapolis band Funk Incorporated. I'm excited to have Steve on the show. He's one of the most important musicians in Indianapolis, and in my opinion, one of the greatest guitarists in the world. Let's listen to a sample of his work. From the 1972 album Chicken Lickin', this is Funk Inc. with The Better Half, featuring Steve Weekly on guitar. just heard an excerpt from a 1972 recording by Funk Incorporated, featuring my guest tonight, Steve Weekly, on guitar. Let's join my conversation with Steve as he talks about his early years growing up in Indianapolis. So you were born in Indianapolis, right? Yes, I was. I yeah. went to Attics. Uh, had some of the best teachers there were. I, I played cello. Uh, well, I guess all Mr. Together. Newsom, is oh, that what Mr. you studied? Mr. With? Mr. Newsom, and I, I, I was uh, first chair, played cello, and I learned about music theory, and I transferred it to guitar as I got older. And we, it was very disciplined in attics, and it was no. I was blessed to go to attics, cause we had they let me take an instrument home every, every summer, and I worked on it, and I also played the string quartet, and so just sharpened my skills and. I was playing guitar the whole time, but I wanted to understand what I was doing and, and, and why I was doing it. And so I used to get the Mickey Baker books with my with my allowance of every week. And I'd go down to Lyric Music and buy, uh, uh, either Mickey Baker had a book out and there was another book uh, by another guitarist. And I would study that book every week, and I, that's how I spent my, my early teens. So was guitar your first instrument? Yeah, it was, and uh, I always wanted to play one since I was, I don't know, five or six when my mother uh, took me to my grandmother's home in Arkansas, 
and uh, she lived in the middle of this rice paddy. And I wouldn't use the outdoor plumbing, so they put me in a slop jar. You know, we know what a slop jar is, right? On the back porch. And so what I could what I could do is I could hear the, the guys playing guitars, and I could see them uh, around this 55-gallon uh, drum with the fire going and drinking the white lightning out of the, the mason jars and playing blues. Lord, my baby leaving this morning. Quiet chest that too, too try. Sir, my baby leaving this morning. Quiet chest that too, too try. And I, and it was just, I stayed out there all night. And by the way, I, I got bit up by the mosquitoes. I swole up like the Pillsbury Doughboy. <laughs> so they had to take me to the hospital the next day and uh, get me a shot. A shot. So I don't think I can get malaria to this day, but I, no, I, I made up my mind, and by the time I was 8 or 10, I, I managed to get I, my first guitar we paid for, I think it was $14, $12 or $14. It, it, uh, it was one of those old arch tops. It took us three months to pay for it. Mom told me if I didn't learn how to play it, she'd take it back. So. <laughs> Did but, anyone else in your family play music? Oh, my big brother, Richard Corbin. Uh, you know how little brothers always want to do what big brother's doing. And so he was playing at the, the Flame Club uh, with Billy Ball and the Upsetters. And he had all these uh, uh, brocade sparkly jackets he would wear on the weekend. I'd see him get dressed up to go play a gig. I said, that looks neat. I think I'd like to do that. But I, uh, I managed to... We kind of bifurcated in, in our likes because he went more toward R&B and I went more toward jazz. Because I played with the Girl Watchers on the Avenue first. Uh, Robert Dykus, Frank Dykus, uh, uh, Pedro, Baby Leon, Mr. T. And uh, we did a lot of really, really, really good stuff. But I, st I still felt like playing jazz. So I ended up with, ja uh, with uh, Don Austin, the trio. It was Don Austin, Chico Crawford, and myself, and uh, I played for them for about a year, and then uh, Eugene Barr approached me. He says, uh, he says, Steve, I, I know this band we, we put together, we, we're trying to do something, and it's going to be big, and uh, I'd like you to be involved in it. And I say, well, who's involved? He said, well, Jimmy Mumford, and uh, of course it was Eugene Barr, Daddy B., and it was uh, Watley, which took took me a little while to get used to Bobby, you know. <laughs> you know what I mean? But yeah, yeah. Every time, yeah, we we uh, we're kind of like brothers at at toward the end. Before you were in Funk Incorporated, though, you were in other groups, right? Soul Citations is that one of your? Oh, bands? that was one of my groups. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me about the Soul Citations. Well, it was uh, Jeffrey Grigsby. Uh, Sam Williams, uh, myself, Cootie, Robert Rums, Cootie, he just passed away a few months ago. And uh, we did our first show at the Madam Walker. And we did a show behind Tanya Dupree, I'll never forget. Because we were all, like, in in our early middle teens. And and we uh, we had our steps together and stuff, and we played a lot of... Uh, it's, you know, stuff, rock and roll stuff, and we, we would go pick each other up in the mornings on weekends and and uh, sit on the porch and, and play until it got dark. And after 
it was it was uh, it was fun, and we all hung out together. You know. Was that your first band? Would you say? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it was. Uh, oh, uh, Leslie Pippins. He was Lester a, Pipkins. L- Leslie Pippins. Okay, and Stephen yeah. Sloan is that one of the guys? Steve Sloan. He was. Yeah. A sing- yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, he, I tell you what, he sounded just like the lead singer and uh, and the Spinners, uh, Rubber Band Man, and uh, we used to all skip when he was dancing, so we'd be out, so he'd be out of step. We just like messing with him. We were, we were like brothers. We had a we had a lot of fun. So you mentioned you saw these blues musicians down in Arkansas, was it, when you yeah. were a kid? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know you're a jazz fan. Kenny Burrell was a big influence oh, on yeah. you, right? Yeah. What were you listening to as a young person? Were you listening to R&B mostly, jazz, blues, or everything? Well, at the time, you could hear um, jazz on the radio. Yeah, it would be a love. WGEE or uh, well, that station out of Rochester. Okay. And then there was some, uh, a lot of the commercials on t- on the radio had West Montgomery on them, and uh, just the kind of music that sticks to you. great guitar players in Indianapolis during the time you were coming up. Of course, Wes Montgomery, mm-hmm. Floyd Smith lived oh, here. Oh, Floyd Smith. Scrapper uh, Blackwell. He was. Uh, you were young when he passed, but they were very influential guitar players here. Who do you remember hearing that, that was leaving an impression on you as a young person? Smith, I met him several times. We hung out here, but I met him in Atlantic City. He was playing with Bill Doggett, and I was playing with Funk Incorporated. Cuba Gooding Jr.'s dad was in the group Main called Ingredient. Main Ingredient. He was in the room with us in Atlantic City, and uh, Charles Erling was in the room, and down the street was B.B. King. And so me and Floyd got together. You know, it's good to see somebody from home. We go. We get together and we go down to the Wonder Garden. We're at the Club Harlem. We're down to the Wonder Garden to see BB, and he was just what you see. He was a, a kind, generous cat, you know. Did he know Floyd? I believe he did. Yeah. Yeah. He he, he didn't know me, but uh, before 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 I left, he did. Yeah. D- were you aware of Floyd's importance in the history of the guitar? He's one of the first musicians to ever play the electric guitar on a solo on a record. I, I, did, I wasn't aware of that too much later on. Yeah. I knew he was uh, part of the uh, honky-tonk and the Bill Doggett thing, you know. And uh, he's another guy that was very generous with his time with me. Uh, I used to, he used to have me on gigs. He didn't need me, but he would have me on gigs, me and Larry Clark. we do the NCO Club out in Fort Harrison. But it was just fun to, to hang out with, with Floyd, you know.
So was Wes Montgomery an influence on you at all? Were you listening to his music? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when I heard him, I, I, I heard Kenny Burrell first. But he, he just seemed to have such a command of, of, of uh, playing melodically and, and using block chords and melody chords. It's uh, just beautiful music. It's, uh, some people have a debate between the Riverside recordings and the more modern things that he did. I love them all. I mean, there was something in there for everybody. You, know? you were young when he passed. You were probably just 17, 18 years old, right? I was in high school. Yeah. Uh, I was playing, but I was in high school, and it was, uh, to me, very tragic because I wanted to see him in person. Did you take any extra kind of influence or inspiration from the fact that he'd come up here in Indianapolis? Did that kind of help motivate you in your journey towards becoming a professional musician? Absolutely. Uh, I think, uh, you know, I never played anything that he's done note for note. But I, I'm sure I can I can hum most of the Moving West album. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I listened to it that much. You know, I, after school, you know, I'd come home and, and put it on and, and lay there and listen to it. I wouldn't try to play it. In fact, there was some of his material that I didn't try to play till I was well into my 30s. I had to get the sheet music to it. So, so, so whoever said he was musically uneducated, he knew what he was doing. Because if he didn't, he, he couldn't have done it. <laughs> Are there any other guitar players around Indianapolis during your early years that you remember or that left an impression on you or influenced you in some way? Well, I used to like, uh, I was playing at the place to play, and uh, and there was, uh, you know, Lester Johnson, he's still around, he's playing bass. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a guitar player, uh, William Cochran. Yeah. Rose. Oh, he was, he was something extra special. Oh man, he could play. Yeah, he could play anything. And uh, oh, Jennings. Uh, he played guitar. He would come by the Surfside, and he had some albums out where he was with McDuff. Uh, he was a. He used to come by the Surfside Seven, uh, and and. Borrow picks. I don't think he really needed any picks. He just wanted to hang out. He was a Mr. Jennings was a extraordinary guitar player. I got one of his uh, things now that I listen to quite regularly. He was a very talented individual. 
and uh, his phrasing and uh, the way he thought through a song was the way it should be done. Yeah. I got a chance to I got a chance to meet him back in the back in the 80s. He used to come up here when Fast uh, Kitchen was the place to start. And uh, I, I put groups together for him, but he was uh, very generous with his time. And uh, there's a lot of good guitar players that have, that have come out of Indianapolis, and I feel like I'm in great company. Playing with the soul citations, which was mm-hmm. more you said rock and mm-hmm. maybe R and B. What were some of your first opportunities to play jazz? Actually, it was with uh, the Dave uh, with the Don Austin trio. Don Austin, okay. We played a lot of uh, Jimmy and West kind of stuff, you know. Uh, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, I also played with a group later on. Uh, trying to think of Brit- the, the, the Al Coleman, uh, the Three Souls, mm-hmm. uh, Will Scott, and and. Uh, it was a chess record group, and I, I got a chance to play with them for a while. We, we, we took a, a trip overseas, and it was a, it was a trip of life. We had a great time. Really? What year was that? Uh, about twenty years ago, because we went to uh, we went through uh, London and Germany, and then we ended up spending about ten days in Zimbabwe. Yeah, and you played in Zimbabwe with the Three Souls with Al yeah. Coleman. Wow. Yeah, that was a trip of a lifetime. <laughs> I think my blessing has been uh, undisputably to, to be able to play with a lot of great cats and, and to be able to to absorb what they what what they could bring uh, to the bandstand and and all these guys knew that I played and I was in my you know I was young and they would always uh, take up a little time and, and show me stuff you know I try to do the same thing with young guitar players now. But, you know, young guitar players now, they have YouTube and stuff. Back in the day, the only thing we could do was slow a record down and <laughs> hope we could find it, you know. You were working professionally at a very young age, and you were getting noticed by the established musicians, right? Uh, yeah. In fact, I wasn't old enough. My mother had to go to a, she went to a, a funeral home and, and signed a note that gave me permission to play in, in nightclubs. And, uh, at a I funeral was, home? Yeah. At the funeral home? Yeah, that's the only place they had. What they call them? A notary? Notary. notary yeah, public. okay. <laughs> and, you know, I wasn't interesting. In, I wasn't interested in all the stuff that was going on in the periphery. I was I was interested in playing guitar. I wanted to I wanted to, to do to do it the best. Uh, and I had the, I I was given opportunities that uh, 
I tell young people now, it's, it's always good to prepare yourself because you don't know when you'll get an opportunity. So if you get that opportunity, be ready for it. I'm Kyle Wong, and you're listening to Cultural Manifesto. If you're just tuning in, my guest tonight is guitarist Steve Weekly, a founding member of the legendary Indianapolis band Funk Incorporated. The original Funk Incorporated lineup also included Bobby Watley, Eugene Barr, Jimmy Mumford, and Cecil Hunt. In this next segment, Steve will share some memories of how the group came together. Let's return to my conversation with Steve Weekly. So you mentioned that it was Eugene Barr that first approached yeah. you about, he said he had something in the works that was, yeah, uh, he said, wanted to pull you in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they had seen me playing with the uh, other groups, and I guess I must have did a good job. He, he thought I was worth having about, having, having around, and uh, he, was a real, he was a really good cat. You know, he, he kind of watched over me. What were the other guys doing in the band before Funk Inc., like Eugene? Who were they playing with? Oh, well, he Bobby. was... Eugene had been all over the country playing with with name groups and, and uh, you know, uh, the, the circuit, you know, Michigan, uh, New Jersey, Ohio, uh, up by the lakes. You know, he was from Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. And uh, he, and uh, Bobby was from Steubenville. Uh Drummer from Detroit. I was from here. Everybody, I think uh, Indianapolis is one of those places where musicians sometimes come and don't leave because it's called the cost of living, and plus you can you can find work. And so I ended up with these cats, and it was it was an experience. I think the first solid gig we did we started off at the Surfside, and we went from there to the 19th hole in the Honey Dripper. Do you remember yeah. the what year you played your first gigs with Funk Inc? I know we did our first. I think we did, we did a uh, the first album we did in 1971. It had to be somewhere in late 69 or 70. Um, I was still a teenager, and it was a uh, it was hard work. Uh, we had to learn. We had to. I had to learn a lot of material, and and then uh, the element of playing with a young group. And you and you're used to playing maybe a night or a night or, or then when you start playing five nights and two matinees, it's a different order of uh magnitude of the stamina that it takes and, and the concentration of focus. Uh and how you have to fit, how you have to change what you do playing with an organ player and playing with a bass player or playing with a piano player is all separate different things. And you have to know the difference and and, and focus, you know, it, it was it was a fun thing though. You have to, you know, you have to love this to do it the way we did it, you know. Because living out of a suitcase uh, after a year or two is no fun. Did the group immediately kind of make an impression on the music scene here? I think once we got organized and started playing organized music, and 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 you know, doing covers is okay, but it's nothing like doing your own material. And once you nail your own material, nobody can do it like you. And if you record something, you damn well better like it because you're going to be doing it for a while. And uh, I, I still uh, can hear some of the stuff that we used to do and say, hey, you know, that wasn't bad, you know. I think uh, I think Bobby was better than he thought he was. 
Uh, I think Eugene was uh, incredible. If you hear some of the solos on, the, on the, some of those things. I just feel fortunate to, to have been there when I was. Yes, it was Bobby Watley on organ, Eugene yeah. Barr on tenor sax, mm-hmm. uh, Cecil Hunt on congas, is that right? Yeah. And uh, Mumford on drums. Jimmy Mumford. Jimmy Mumford. And, yeah. uh, and you on guitar. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned you were playing, uh, I think, at the 19th hole when you met Jack McDuff, is that right? Uh, uh, I think we were playing, uh, he was playing at the uh, Honey Dripper. The Honey Dripper. Uh, uh, and boy, he was wailing. So Jack McDuff, I understand, was responsible for helping to introduce the group and make the connections between Funk Inc. and Prestige Records, where Funk Inc. would record all their music. Is that? Do you remember? Well, I know he wrote a, a song or two for us, and yeah. I, I think Houston. Houston Pearson also. Pearson's, I think he uh, was instrumental. Okay, uh, yeah. Uh, do you remember how that happened at all? No, I, I was just glad to be there. Yeah. <laughs> well, you were much younger than the rest of the guys, right? Oh, I, I was much younger. Baby. Yeah, yeah, I was much younger than... Uh, they weren't letting you handle the business. No, but I kept my ears open and, my, and uh, for the most part, my mouth shut. And uh, except when it came to music, you know. around 1970-71 that you got signed to Prestige Records. Mm-hmm. I'd say in, in the world of jazz, there was Blue Note and Prestige at that time. They were the main labels that were really important in the scene. Do you remember when the band got signed and what that meant to you at the time? Did it feel like a breakthrough? Yeah, or? The Ryan management, we were in New York. Uh, and uh, we signed a letter in intent at first, and then we uh, went on and signed a contract. We took it very seriously. I mean, we had a chance to <clears throat> record at Rui Van Gelder's in Inglewood Cliffs and, and uh, a couple of times. And then we went out to the West Coast and, and Berkeley and uh, recorded out there. And all along the way, we, we met incredible musicians, uh, Johnny Guitar, Watson, uh, Cannonball. And, uh, like I said, the best thing about this business for me is being able to, to, to meet these guys and to hang. And you were still a teenager when the group got signed and recorded, right? Oh, yeah, I was about 20, yeah. and uh, it worked out for me. I had, uh, I had the stamina and the intent and the aggressiveness, and uh, I didn't mind spending the time studying to do what I needed to do. And, uh, and, but, you know, as a natural progression, you, you grow and you learn. You know, if you do this right, you grow and you learn. You kind of brushed over this, but the band's first two records were recorded by Rudy Van Gelder in mm-hmm. New Jersey. I think unquestionably the most renowned jazz recording engineer produced and recorded everybody. Miles Davis, John Coltrane, any yeah. anybody you want to mention, he probably recorded one of their classic records. What was that experience like, and did you realize you were entering into this space with this legendary musical figure? Like being in church. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? You look up and say, wow, you know, here I am, you know, and trying to make this count, you know? So you knew the importance of recording with him and the legacy that he, that he embodied. Yeah. Well, I, I would, you know, 
And then it's just like I think being an athlete, your mind shifts to focusing on what you're there for. And uh, absolutely the best time to do this is first thing in the morning before your mind gets cluttered up with, with other stuff of the day. And just, you know, if you can live in the music and, and get it get it done and get it out, that's, that's the perfect thing to do. curious how the jazz community was responding to Funk Inc.'s music at the time, because I think maybe audiences today don't understand, but you were, your music was different at that time. You were kind of a trailblazing group because you were bringing, I mean, Funk was in the name. You were really making, you were playing jazz in, in the context of Funk music, and that was a new idea at the time. That was before Herbie Hancock had his Funk records, and you guys really were trailblazers in that sense, right? Yeah, we had some mentorship in that, though, because Grant was telling me, he said, you know, that's what's happening. It was uh, exciting. It's always exciting to do something for the first time. But what I think that what's really exciting is when you're getting ready to go to a town, like you're getting ready to go to Philadelphia or, or Crawford's Grill in Pittsburgh or you're getting ready to go to Atlantic City, and, you, and you're coming into town and you hear them playing your records over the radio. You know, you, and you get to the club and there's a line out front, you know. And then you see, actually see posters with you on them, you know. Say, wow, this is a big deal. <laughs> so it was getting a good response. Oh, it was uh, nothing like it. Yeah. Nothing like it. Let's make peace. Oh, let's make peace. Stop the wars. Let's make peace. Let's make peace. Oh, stop the wars. listening to Cultural Manifesto. If you're just tuning in, my guest tonight is guitarist Steve Weekly, a founding member of the legendary Indianapolis band Funk Incorporated. Let's return to my conversation with Steve Weekly. And you were on the road with Funk Inc. for, was it four years? Uh, it seemed like longer. Seemed like longer? <laughs> Would have been <laughs> Maybe three years, 71, 74? Is that when you were kind of out on the road with the group? Yeah. And like I said, it seemed like... Uh, then I came back and I started doing some things with Billy. Yeah. Uh, Wooten. Sure. I'm going to yeah. ask you about that, but what, yeah. mm-hmm. are there gigs from that time period with Funk, Inc. that really stand out in your mind? Uh, Smallest Paradise, uh, the Pith Art in Rochester, Pine Grill, Buffalo, uh, the Revelot Buffalo, Stratford Buffalo, uh, Club Harlem in Atlantic City. 
couple of clubs in Young Youngstown. What, what about these places it stands out in your mind? Just the environment, the people, the crowds? Well, uh, each town is, 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 is different, but there are some similar, similarities. And, and, and especially where we had to stay. Where, just like in the movie Ray, we didn't stay in hotels a lot at the beginning. We stayed in boarding houses. And that could be a wild ride. If you've seen the, <laughs> if you've seen the movie Ray, uh, you, you could go down to the, it's generally a, a row of rooms and there's a bathroom at the end of the hall. Anything could be going on in that bathroom at the end of the hall. <laughs> and the first level would be uh, elderly people. And the second level would be people in various uh, types of uh, undesirable activities. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then uh, on the third floor, you know, it would be the musicians. And uh, we would be in and out, you know, and... Uh, it, it's, it's definitely a, a lifestyle. You recorded four albums with Funk Incorporated. Yes. I want to ask you about some of these. The first one is Funk Inc., 1971, mm -hmm. Rudy Van Gelder. Mm -hmm. uh, the opening track on that record is maybe the most legendary record the band made. It's a cover of Cool in the Gang's Cool oh, is yeah. Back. about Cool is Back. I still remember I, the, the guitar riff on the front of it. You know, it was a, a, a pleasure doing it. There's some songs that you do that you always remember. There's some that you don't remember quite as much, like Bowlegs. That was one of mine. But, uh, yeah, that was fun. And the, the solo that Eugene does on it is fantastic. Cool and the gang were an up-and-coming band at that time. I think that was on their first or second record. Who mm -hmm. in the group said, let's, let's do this song? Do you remember? I think that was Bobby's idea. Yeah. 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 Uh, you mentioned Bow Lakes. That's one of the funky tracks on that first album. What do you remember about that one? I, I remember that uh, it was rhythmic, and it, it just came to me one day. It, it was rhythmic. It, it was really rhythmic. And I... I I concentrated more on the on the rhythm of the song and the feel of the song because I wanted something people could listen to but something people could dance to also. And, then I, and to have the freedom to do this on a major label, at my age, man, that was, that was a thrill. Yeah. I, I was coming home one day, because I, after I'd done this, I bought a house in Harville. And I'm walking down the street, and the guy across the street's playing. You know, that's, oh, it's no, it's no better feeling, yeah. you know. He's got his door open, and the music's blasting, you know. 
that first album, one of the songs that I think features you most prominently is Thrill Is Gone, the B.B. King song, which you do a great solo on. Do you remember recording that? Yeah. I remember getting B.B. to sign my albums for me. Yeah. It wasn't my idea. Because, you know, nobody can do B.B. like B.B. Uh, but I did what I was required to do, and I stand by it. Yeah, I think you sound great on that record, but yeah, <laughs> that's big shoes to fill, right? Oh, absolutely impossible. Yeah, and I, if you, and uh, I, I met BB, and I have heard him play extensively. And he's one of the cleanest blues players I've ever heard. He, he used no reverb. second album you recorded, also recorded with uh, Rudy Van Gelder, mm. 1972, Chicken Lickin'. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that has one of my favorite uh, solos from you on it. And uh, you told, I asked you about this before, and you told me you weren't that crazy about it, but you yeah. wrote this song, They Trying to Get Me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Tell me about that one. Well, I think I was spent too much time in Pittsburgh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Why do you say that? Well, it was... Uh... I, I think a lot of that music happened when we were in Pittsburgh, and uh, we were playing Crawford's Grill, and uh, we we had, uh, it was it was it was some parts of being on the road is rough, and and the Hill District in Pittsburgh is is rough, but I think it's survivable as long as you uh, watch your surroundings and. And it certainly seemed at the time that they were trying. To yeah, it's a paranoid <laughs> title, right? It has oh, kind of yeah. a paranoid feeling well, yeah, in the song. Yeah, it was something yeah. to be paranoid about, though. Yeah, I'm telling you.
it's almost psychedelic. It has kind of a Jimi Hendrix type of sound with all the effects you're using. Uh, yeah, but you know, I, I did a lot of that just with the with the feedback of the, of the, of the tube amp, mm-hmm. you know, it's the old-fashioned way. And uh, no effects. Nah. Yeah. Just the, the feedback of, of, of the tube amp. I, I still occasionally do that, but now I'm, I'm more into a cleaner sound. Rudy Van Gelder wasn't recording a lot of music like that. What do you remember if he reacted at all when you were making that record? Totally professional. He just wanted to make sure that, that we were getting done what we wanted to get done. And uh, it was a thrill being there. Yeah. Like I said, it was like being in church. You look up at the place and think of all the people that had been there before you. Listening to guitarists like Jimi Hendrix at that time that were playing more on the psychedelic end of the music spectrum? No, I was playing a lot by myself, you know, especially when you have that time and you're in a room by yourself, you know. You go into yourself and you try to, to pull out those things that are, that are special and, and, and try to, to work them in your head and to give those things a beginning, a middle, and the end and make them tell a story, you know. And, and the third record you cut was Hanging Out in 1973, and that was out in California, right? Yeah. Yeah. Did the group go live out in California, or did you, did you just fly out there to record? Uh, we flew out there, and I really enjoyed the energy out there. I wish I had spent more time. I didn't get back to that area too much later, but it was uh, everything that I had anticipated and, and more. One of my favorite tracks off that record, Hanging Out, is mm-hmm. give your version of Curtis Mayfield's Give Me Your Love, which mm-hmm. features you on lead. What, yeah. what do you remember about that? It seemed to move well, no matter where we went. And uh, There's some songs you do and you do, and there's some songs you do and you feel. And that's one of the, I, I did, I did, I, I think I felt that.
last record that you recorded with Funky Inc. was Super Funk, also mm. in 1973, mm. recorded in Berkeley with David Axelrod, yeah. who's a legendary producer uh, mm. and in recent years has gained a lot of fame in the hip-hop community for the style of drums he had on his records, and he's really become a cult figure. What do you remember about working with, with David? He was willing to take a chance. I, I think in music, sometimes... He, well, when you create, especially when you're doing something new, you, you have to take a chance from time to time. And uh, I had a great time doing it. Uh, I look at the, uh, the 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 album cover, and I I can remember it like it was yesterday. Yeah, you're getting out of a van or something, right? Yeah, and yeah. I'm wearing a yellow suit. Yeah. <laughs> That's the best part. My turn now. The album, I think, opens with Message from the Meters, the yeah. great New Orleans yeah. funk group. Was that yeah. a big influence on Funk Inc.? Yeah, yes, it was. And, and, and I like the way that went. Uh, and, and I like the way the whole album went. Uh, when I look at the front of it, that's how we were. That's pretty much how we existed. Out of that van, living out of that van? Uh, for a minute, you know, Cecil, Cecil, uh, kind of had his own way of doing things, but we, we, we hung out all, you know, like brothers, and uh, it was a great time. Do you have a favorite of the albums you played on or a favorite track? Anything come to mind? I, I, I think my favorite was, will always be the first one. Yeah. You know, for, for sentimental reasons. The second one uh, reminds me of, of my time in, in Pittsburgh. The latter one was... Uh, it was just a lot of fun to do, and, 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 and I got a chance to meet some incredible people. I'm Kyle Long, and you're listening to Cultural Manifesto. If you're just tuning in, my guest tonight is guitarist Steve Weekly, a founding member of the legendary Indianapolis band Funk Incorporated. The music Steve recorded with Funk Inc. has played a crucial role in hip-hop sample culture particularly the song Cool Is Back, which has been sampled in dozens of classic hip-hop tracks. During the 1980s, the song even appeared on the Ultimate Breaks and Beats compilation series, a sort of musical bible for hip-hop beat makers. There are two key elements of Funk Inc.'s version of Cool Is Back that figure prominently in samples of the song. The first is Steve's famous opening guitar riff. Second is Bobby Watley's organ stab, which leads into Jimmy Mumford's drum break. In this next segment, I ask Steve for his thoughts on the song's use in hip-hop music. You know, as I mentioned, the first album opens with Cool Is Back. In the 1980s, oh, yeah. Yeah, in yeah. the 1980s, that became 
one of the most sampled songs in hip-hop history. It's one of the cornerstones, really, of hip-hop music. I mean, the songs, I wrote down a few of the famous songs that this has been sampled in. Pop, huge pop songs, like Owner of a Lonely Heart by Yes, which is a huge hit by the British rock group Yes. Yes. Did you, did you know that? No. Really? I did not know that. Oh, my gosh. That's like the foundation of the song. I know some of them sampled, but yeah. I, did, I didn't know that particular one. A Millie Vanilli. Like, I actually, I want to read you a list of some of the artists. And the song remains popular as a sample today. Jay-Z had a big song last year called The Story of O.J. It was considered one of the most important records of 2017. It's built around the sample from, from Cool Is Back. But here's, here's some of the artists that have sampled that track, Cool Is Back. Public Enemy, Slick Rick, The Beastie Boys, Art of Noise, Sting, TLC, Cypress Hill, Queen Latifah, LL Cool J, U2, Massive Attack, Ice-T, Aphex Twin, Raekwon, Eazy-E, Belle Bib DeVoe, Mary J. Blige, Nas, Vanessa Williams, DJ Shadow, Tupac, Living Color, Herbie Hancock, Run DMC, MC Hammer, Boys to Men, Old Dirty Bastard, Vanilla Ice. <laughs> I mean, hundreds and hundreds of bands have sampled this track. All kinds of musicians from all over the world. You, you're not getting any money from that? You weren't aware that this is going on? No, no. The last, the last thing I saw was from, from Europe or Japan. Uh, How, what's your response to that? Like, I mean, hit songs have been built off, off this little break, organ stab and drum break in that record. I'm, I'm glad it holds up. Yeah. And I, I'm glad that... Uh, Another generation has made that connection, you know. So often, uh, you know, music is done, especially in, the, in my generation, and and the next generation just doesn't doesn't grab it. And it's good to know that they find some value in it, and and then it's gone somewhere for them. You're not worried about losing out on any of the money or the getting the fame or credit for creating this. Well, I'm. And have someone look into it. Okay. <laughs> you know, there's always good entertainment lawyers that, that do that. Yeah. Uh, I have been told that there were some things going on. So Funk Inc. went on to make a final. Well, I guess they came back in the 2000s, but they made a final album in the 70s, Price to Sell. At that point, you left the band, though, right? Yeah. Yeah. What, do you want to talk about that, kind of your exit from the band? Well, it wasn't going in the direction I wanted to go in. Where did you want to go? I want to do more of what I'm doing right now. You know, I like to do exciting music. You know, I, I, I didn't want to regress. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. I, I always wanted to go forward. And I, it didn't just, it just wasn't, it was better for them to have somebody that wanted to do what they wanted to do than for me not to be there wholeheartedly and doing something that I didn't want to do. And, and, and in fact, at the point, I didn't have to. You know, uh, I was much happier and much more productive uh, doing what I do now. Price to Sell is the most different record in the Funkin' catalog. It's very commercial. There's mm -hmm. a lot of vocals, and it's not really even a jazz record. It's like very produced kind of soul pop music. I don't know. Yeah, if you you're just... going to make peanut butter, make peanut butter. Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to make almond butter, make almond butter. But don't make almond butter and try to tell me it's peanut butter. <laughs> so you got out. You just said this is. You just went back home to Indy. Yeah, I was cool. It was cool. There's no hard feelings there. Uh, but toward the, I spoke to Bobby uh, before he passed away. I spoke. I spoke to him years before that when he was sick, and I told him I'd pray for him. He, he, I told him he's. 
I said, the good die young, you're going to be fine. <laughs> and, you know, as time went on, but sometimes it's just like with relationships, they, they have their life, you know. And then when that life is over, you just move on. And, and for me, it was time to move on. What did you do when you came back to Indy? You mentioned Billy Wooten, who you played with. Yeah, I played. With. I, did yeah. Some, I did some commercials for him. Uh, jingles I, and things? Yeah, yeah, I did some jingles, and I did some. Uh, I did an album. Uh, in This World, a in classic world. record. Yeah, I got and, it with uh, me. Yeah. And I also, I started working on my own material more. And I, I'm having, I'm having more fun. I've had more fun since that, uh, doing what I'm doing with the trios and sometimes four pieces that I use. And it wasn't an ego thing. It was a thing about trying to do what I do well. It's better to do what you do well than doing what somebody else wants to do badly, <laughs> you know, because it's, it's in the legacy time now, you know. There's a certain f freedom in, the, in being able to... Uh, do what's in your heart and in your mind. And I have a formula in my head and my heart about the way that I, I approach music. And, you know, even even time has to be organized to be successful. And I just had a, a, a organi uh, an, an, an organizational mantra in my head about this what, this is what needs to be happening. And, and somebody else wants to do something else. I just didn't want to be another rock and roll guitar player. It's not me, you know. I'm, I'm, what I've been doing for the last uh, 20 or 30 years has been totally satisfying. And Steve, you mentioned earlier it's important to uh, maintain connections with the people that you kind of grew up and experienced life with. Sadly, mm -hmm. out of the original Funk Inc., you're the remaining member. Um, any comments you, you want to make on the group's legacy and, and your bandmates in this in this amazing group that are loved all around the world and still their their music is still played all around the world. It's a classic classic music. Any thoughts on the legacy and the, the musicians you made this work with? I'm proud and privileged to have been part of that and uh, for my time in it and what I contributed and. Uh, and the incredible musicians I was able to meet by doing it. And uh, being a company of, uh, particularly Eugene Barr, <laughs> I learned a lot from him, a lot of good things from him. Uh, a lot of good life lessons and a lot of good music lessons. And it was a, a privilege uh, to be a part of it when I was. And uh, I have nothing but good feelings about everybody that was involved in it. And I do miss the guys. You know. Steve, you still play. You mentioned the Jazz Kitchen. You play a lot at the Jazz Kitchen. I know you've been playing over at the VFW Hall on MLK yeah. lately. Mm -hmm. uh, anything you have coming up that you want to share with folks, or where can they keep track of, of your work online? Well, I, occasionally I play at the uh, at Rick's. Out, out on the west side at the yeah. boatyard, yeah. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm glad to show up anywhere. I was just there. <laughs> I was at the museum uh, last week. I was at Crane, uh, the Crane Event Center the other day, and uh, I've been I've been blessed. There always seems to be something for me to do. Well, Steve, thank you so much for taking time to be here today. It's an honor to have you here. I'm a huge fan of your music, and uh, man, really appreciate you taking time to share all this information. Thank you. It was great to be here with you. That's all the time we have for tonight. Many thanks to my guest, Steve Weekly. In my opinion, one of the greatest musicians to ever pick up a guitar. I want to end tonight's show 
with a tune from Steve's final record with Funk Incorporated. From the 1973 album Super Funk, this is Goodbye So Long. I'm Kyle Long, and you've been listening to Cultural Manifesto, made possible in part by the Indianapolis Foundation, celebrating over 100 years of service. Try